Hello, my name is Geoffrey Wyatt. I'm the manager of Sydney Observatory and I'm going to talk to you today about what's visible in the sky this month for March 2008. Of course, this sky guide and audio guide are available at our website at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au forward slash blog. For more information about the night sky, we recommend that you purchase our 2008 Australian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Long. For any night viewing activity, you really do need some simple equipment that you should have with you. I would like to recommend that you have a blanket, a pillow, of course some mozzie repellent, and a red torch. But recently there's been some talk in the science press about whether or not red is needed, so maybe just a dim torch would be fine. Of course, for those under 18, I'd recommend a glass of warm Milo, and for those over 18, a glass or two of a fine red. What you need to do is find your cardinal directions. Now, to do that, of course, you need to go outside and find somewhere where you've got a nice dark, clear view, hopefully to as many horizons as possible. For March, the sun is setting pretty much due west, so that's a good place to start. So let's say we... Look towards the west after sunset for the fading glow. If you're looking west, obviously to your right is north, behind you is east, and to your left is south. Now that might seem like a rather strange thing to talk about, but it's quite amazing how often people ring us up and talk about, well, I was looking at a bright object outside my kitchen window. Um, Cardinal directions, simple as they may be, provide us with a great deal of information whether you're simply looking into the sky following the sky guide or in fact contacting us at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au to report an object sighting in the sky. The other thing you'll need to know about finding your way about is to measure off some simple sizes or angles. For most adults, if you hold your hand open at arm's length, from the tip of your pinky to the tip of your thumb is in the order of 12 to 15 degrees. Clenched fists is about 10 degrees, and a pinky at arm's length is about 1 degree, or twice the size of the full moon. By using the cardinal directions and our angle measurers, we'll be able to find most things in the night sky. Let's begin by looking north after sunset, about 8 o'clock. If you look almost due north, about 30 degrees above the horizon, or of course two handspans at arm's length, you'll be able to see a fairly distinct reddish-looking object, which is, of course, a planetea, a wanderer, Mars' god of war. It's not as bright as it was uh, late last year. At the moment, it's about the tenth brightest object in the night sky, excluding the moon. What can we say about Mars? Well, certainly it's reddish. Not traffic-like red, but certainly reddish. It's caused by the, if you like, the rusting or the oxidising of the iron in the Martian soil. It's cold. Many people assume because we say it's a desolate planet that it is in fact hot. No. Middle of summer on the equator, it probably gets up to a balmy 20 to 25 degrees. But most of the time on Mars, bitterly cold, just before sunrise, maybe down minus 110, 120 degrees. It's cold, it looks barren, but is there life there? And that's what everybody really wants to know. At this stage, we simply don't know. 
So what we're going to do is just concentrate on the view of Mars from here simply by looking north. But, you know, the other thing is, I can say that it's due north and, say, 15, uh, 30 degrees above the horizon, but sometimes we need a, a, a bit of a helper, an assistant, if you like, in the night sky. And astronomers have been doing this for, well, for thousands of years. One of the oldest star maps dates back nearly 2,000 years to Claudius Ptolemy, or as Carl Sagan used to call him, Ptolemaeus. Ptolemy devised a, a chart of stars and made-up constellations, uh, about 18 in fact, and we still have them today, but we've been adding to them for thousands of years, and we only finished doing this officially in the 1930s with the latest, which is also the smallest constellation, the Southern Cross. Constellations, the best way to think of them, is effectively a suburb in the sky. If I was to give you a suburb of any particular city, it immediately gives you an idea for which part of that city. And we do the same thing with the night sky. So at the moment, when we say we're looking north towards uh, trying to find Mars, we're actually saying at this time of year we're looking north towards the constellation of Gemini the Twins. Now, look at Mars, the relatively bright reddish object. Look to the right and almost a handspanned away, you'll see two bright stars. The brighter of these two is Pollux. When I say bright, they're not quite as bright as Mars, but they're the brighter stars in that part of the sky. The other one that's between uh, Pollux and Mars is Castor. Pollux and Castor represent the twins that sailed with Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. And that really is one of my favourite sky stories because more than any other story that I'm aware of, it relates to what we now see as constellations. So it's quite a fascinating story that links if you like, the history of the past, the mythology of the past, to the mythology of the sky. If you're trying to look at Gemini and see a picture of twins, it's actually quite difficult, and this is where it really is essential to have your Australian Sky Guide or the simpler version that you can print off from our website because you need someone to print off and, sh and effectively join the dots to make up the simple stick figures. Yes, they are relatively simple and... I think we have that expectation of grandiose you know, drawings with curls and swirls that we see so much from the 16th century onwards in terms of star maps. But no, there are no lines in the sky, but a simple stick figure that you'll find in our Australian Sky Guide or on our blog maps will actually help you. So if you look at Castor and Pollux, what you're trying to see are simple stick figures, twins holding hands, the only problem is, of course, that they're upside down since they were first looked at, if you like, according to the mythology we now use, uh, from the Northern Hemisphere. So down here, sadly, everything's up the wrong way. But once again, with a little imagination and the sky guide, you should be able to pick out some simple stick figures of twins holding hands. After you've had a look at Gemini, go back toward Mars and then head up to your left, about a handspan, 12 to 15 degrees, you'll see another fairly bright orange-reddish-looking star. This star is actually one of the most interesting stars in the night sky. It's called Betelgeuse. Now, it's red for a completely different colour, Mars being a planet that's oxidising, Betelgeuse being, well, in effect, a dying star. Betelgeuse is the brightest star in the constellation of Orion the Hunter. Many people call it Orion, 
but I'll stick with Orion. Orion is a mighty hunter and the star Betelgeuse, well, to give you an idea, it's about 427 light years away and nearly 1,000 times bigger than the sun. Now, straight away, that introduces two things that we need to think, think about. The stars are at different distances to us. When we look up, they all look like they're the same distance away. It's pretty much a two-dimensional view of the night sky. But astronomers have long suspected, and now, of course, long known, that stars are different sizes, different brightnesses, and, of course, different distances. If we say a star is 427 light years away, that means the star's light, once it reached the surface of the star, has taken 427 years to go from that star to here. So, in effect, you're looking back into time. I've also mentioned that this star is big, between 800 and 1,000 times the diameter of the Sun. Don't forget that the Sun itself is about 114 times the diameter of the Earth. It really does put into perspective that some of these tiny dots that we look at in the night sky are truly massive in size, but their distance makes them look small. Now, Betelgeuse, the brightest star in the constellation of Orion, actually represents the armpit of the hunter. Mm, Not a particularly nice way of considering a star so beautiful as, as Betelgeuse, but according to the ancients, it represents the armpit, or in fact we now say it's the shoulder of the hunter. It can be difficult to see a hunter here, but once again, if you look at the simple stick figure in your Australian sky guide, you might be able to see it. But let me tell you, of course, most Australians look at this part of the sky. We don't see a hunter, but rather a very simple saucepan. Now, the saucepan is rather tricky to find, but look towards the middle of the constellation of Orion. You'll see three stars in a lovely straight line. This represents the belt of Orion, which, of course, was made famous by that great science fiction movie Men in Black. It's the bottom of the saucepan, then on one side you have the normal straight-up, I suppose, side of the saucepan, and on the other side you have three stars that make up a handle. So, look, you need minimal imagination, but look at this and you should be able to see uh, a picture of of a saucepan. Interestingly, if you get out a pair of binoculars, but you really do need to mount them onto a tripod or a stick, just about anything, sit them on a wall, because you can't hold them still enough to enjoy the view. If you look at the middle star-like object of the saucepan's handle, you'll actually see that that one fuzzy star to the naked eye is in fact, well, a cloud, a nebula. What you're looking at when you look into Orion's nebula is a cloud of gas and dust where stars are being born at this very minute. It really is one of the most beautiful objects you can ever have a look at. So once again, you don't have to have a telescope. But if you can get to an observatory and have a look at it through a telescope, it really is quite spectacular. But even binoculars, as long as you can mount them still and steady, then you'll get a good view. Now what you need to do is look up further from Orion, and you'll actually see a very bright star. It's quite high up in the night sky. It is, of course, the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius the dog star, in the constellation of Canis Major, the big dog. Sirius is indeed an interesting star. It is, of course, the brightest star in the night sky, but it's not the closest. What's curious about it is that the ancient Egyptians used it to calculate the length of a year to 365 and a quarter days by measuring its position against the rising sun in something called heliacal rise. Of course, the star is also famous because it was one of the ships in the First Fleet, HMS Sirius, 
and naturally many of us have heard about it because of that rather intriguing character Sirius Black in the Harry Potter novels. Now what I want you to do is to begin to scan to your right and towards the east. And as you do so, you'll come across a, a group of stars not that bright, but if you look at them, I'm sure you'll be able to see an upside-down question mark. Find it, and what you found is Leo, King of the Beasts, and, of course, one of the Zodiac constellations. Zodiac constellations? I mentioned constellations earlier on, but Zodiac simply means the path of the animals. So when we talk about what are now 88 constellations, the Zodiac refers to the path of the animals, of which um, all of them are animals, strangely, bar one, but I'll come to that a little later. So look for the upside-down question mark, and what you're looking at is the chest and the mane of the mighty Leo. Look a little closer, and to the right, a little bit further, uh, if you like, towards the northeast, and you'll be able to see the Roman god of agriculture, Saturn. Now, binoculars won't help you much here, I'm afraid. You need something slightly more powerful, so visit an observatory anywhere, have a look at Saturn, it really will take your breath away. It's often described as the jewel of the night sky. It is a gorgeous object to look at. And for March, you'll be able to see Saturn pretty much in the middle of the constellation of Leo. Continue to the east of Leo the Lion, perhaps three handspans away from Saturn and perhaps one above the ground. And what you'll be able to see is a group of stars, well, I have to say, it looks like a shopping trolley. What you're looking at is Corvus the Crow, who, according to legend, was a fairly lazy bird in service of the god Apollo. Eventually, Apollo lost his temper and cast the bird into the sky along with Crater the Cup and Hydra the Snake. But really, a bird or a shopping trolley? I'll leave it up to you. Have a look. And this, I think, highlights an interesting point again, and that is these constellations that we now use many of which are thousands and thousands of years old. People saw things in the sky that were relevant to them. Now, no one's suggesting, of course, that we come along these days and rename you know, Corvus the Crow the shopping trolley, but I think it is easier for us to look at patterns and recognise things that we're familiar with. I don't know, perhaps in a few years' time, people will talk about a shopping trolley or maybe a mobile phone or a pair of sunglasses when they look at some of these star patterns. Not quite as romantic as some of the stories we have now, but who knows what will happen in the due course of time. Once you've gone past Corvus the Crow, which is pretty much due east, continue around to your right, which is going to be in the southeast. Fairly low in the southeast, you'll find, I think, perhaps the most famous of all southern constellations, indeed, the smallest of all southern constellations, and that is the Southern Cross. To most of us, it looks like a traditional Christian cross, but to many people around the world, they see different things. For example, the Maori of New Zealand call it tapanga, meaning the anchor. But of course, for a truly diverse view on the Southern Cross and what it represents, you need go no further than the Australian Aboriginal communities. In Koori astronomy, it represents many different things. To the Kanda people of New South Wales and near the border of Victoria, it represents the four unmarried daughters of a group elder called Mulalu, who actually is watching over them from the vantage point of uh, Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star in the night sky. 
to other Aboriginal communities up near Groot Island, for example. It represents a ray swimming along merrily, about, unfortunately, to be munched on by a shark coming in from the side. So there are many varied ideas about the Southern Cross, but to most of us we do look at it as being, if you like, a, a Christian cross in the sky, although throughout March it's on its side and slightly upside down. Once again, I'd like to point out that even though the stars of the cross all look like they're together in the same distance, well, they're not. The closest of the stars is Gamma Crucis, and it's about 88 light years away, whereas the second brightest star, Beta Crucis, is about 525 light years away. Don't forget, a light year, really quite simple. It is the distance that light travels in one year. Now, for those of you who are really pedantic and love numbers, it's a big number. Approximately 9,500 billion kilometres. As you can imagine, when you start talking about hundreds of light years, thousands of light years, millions of light years, it simply becomes cumbersome to talk about kilometres. So we use the light year, and eventually we use another wacky unit called the parsec. Wrapped around the Southern Cross, although not all that easy to see at the moment, is the fairly large and famous constellation of Centaurus, half man, half horse. Probably best to leave that for a month or two until it gets slightly higher in the southeast and towards the south. High in the south, you'll see the second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus. Now, Canopus is significantly bigger and brighter than the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius the dog star. So how come it's only second brightest? Aha, as I've mentioned, distance. Stars are at different distances. Sirius is only about 8.7 light years away, whereas Canopus is a lot further at about 310 light years away. Being so far away and still being the second brightest star in the night sky tells us that it must be very, very bright. Indeed, it's about 20,000 times brighter than the sun. Strangely, to some people around the world, in particular fishermen from the Northern Hemisphere and particularly from Japan, when they sail south to come fishing, they see this bright star pop up over the horizon and it makes them feel good. So, in fact, they call it nagaiki, meaning long life. The idea being, of course, if you see something pretty and it makes you feel good, well, you'll live a little bit longer. Now, the part of the sky that stretches from the Southern Cross in the southeast across to Canopus High in the south is an absolutely fabulous hunting ground for binoculars. Use your binoculars to slowly, comfortably scan across the sky and you should be able to see quite a lot of interesting objects, including clusters and maybe, perhaps, depending on the sky conditions, even a nebula around the const- in the constellation of Carina near the bright star, or the dying star, I should say, Eta Carina. So it is a really good part of the deep southern Milky Way, but once again, it's still a bit low at the moment, and we'd best wait for perhaps April, May and June to see that part of the Milky Way at its absolute best. Now that we're facing south, what we're going to do is continue around to our cardinal direction of west. Go a little bit further still and look towards the northwest, and you'll be able to see the setting constellation of Taurus the Bull. 
Taurus the Bull is one of the oldest and most famous constellations in the sky, quite probably, of course, because of our dependence upon cattle as a beast of burden and as a source of food for thousands upon thousands of years. But to many people, it represents Jupiter, king of the gods in disguise. What you've got to do to find Taurus, or the main part of Taurus, is look for a, well, a V-shaped group of stars. One of the stars is slightly reddish, and it's, it's another one of these red stars, a dying star. If you extend the V, they become the horns, and the horns will actually then, one of them will actually point towards Mars, back over in the north. Just below Taurus, about perhaps one handspan above the ground, you'll be able to find what used to be the smallest constellation but is now part of Taurus, called the Pleiades, or M45, the Seven Sisters. This is an open cluster of stars. Some say it's the best open cluster. I prefer the ones in the the deep southern Milky Way between the Southern Cross and Canopus, as I mentioned a minute ago. But the open cluster in Taurus is really quite famous. Why? Well, it's perhaps no more than 100 million years old. It represents the daughters of Atlas and Pleione, And strangely, even though we call them the Seven Sisters, we can only comfortably see six. Now, if you've got good eyesight and it's a really dark location, you might be able to see eight or nine, but rarely does anyone see seven. What's also curious about this is that right around the world there seems to be this same myth in different forms, slightly different forms, that they represent seven sisters, but one of the seven sisters, a godly sister, is not easily visible. Why? Because she had an affair with a mortal man, and as a result she's been banished and she's not easily seen. Why is it that such an intriguing story exists in Kuri astronomy, when we talk about the Woody Guttara and the Minima Burni, from that culture all the way to ancient Greek culture. We have this same idea of seven sisters, but one of the sisters falling foul of, I suppose, morals of the family, morals of the day, and not being as easily visible. It really is quite an intriguing phenomenon. Now, highlights for the month of March include the autumn equinox on Thursday the 20th at 4.48pm. What does that mean? the autumn equinox and we've got to be very very careful because some people will want to call it the autumnal equinox but no i would argue it is in fact the vernal equinox Uh uh-oh autumnal autumn vernal spring it's very confusing an equinox simply means equal day and equal night and this occurs when the sun crosses from one hemisphere to the other on Thursday the 20th, all this means is that the sun will cross from the southern hemisphere back into the northern hemisphere. Now, for us in the southern hemisphere, this, if you like, starts the beginning of autumn. But most of our culture, apart from the tremendous Aboriginal sky culture I've just been talking about, most of our sky culture comes from the northern hemisphere. So for, for those in the north, it's the beginning of spring. So it is, in fact, the vernal equinox although for us we say it's the autumn equinox. A little bit confusing because people will often say, you know, is it the autumnal or autumn equinox? Well, no. For us in the southern hemisphere, let me state again for the record, it is the autumn equinox for us, but the vernal equinox for people in the northern hemisphere simply means the sun is crossing from one hemisphere to the other 
And in this case, it's going from south to north. The autumn equinox also is one of the two dates each year where the sun sets directly west. So I mentioned at the very start of the podcast, if you want to find your cardinal directions, to be honest, you couldn't pick a better day than Thursday the 20th because as the sun sets, it will be due west. And this only happens twice each year. Now the vernal equinox is very shortly followed by the full moon on the 22nd of March. Well, big deal. What does that mean? Well, actually, for many of us on the planet, it is a big deal because one of the most important movable feasts for the last 2,000 years is determined by the equinox and the full moon, and that is, of course, the timing of Easter. The timing of Easter has been an enormous problem for astronomers, philosophers, for obviously about 2,000 years. We've now come down to a definition of Easter, that is... Easter Sunday occurs on or after the first full moon, on or after the equinox. For us, of course, in the Southern Hemisphere, as I mentioned earlier, it's the autumn equinox. But since it was a feast that originated in the Northern Hemisphere, they talk about the vernal equinox. If you're after some interesting views, this month gives you a couple of good opportunities. On the 15th of March, look for the gibbous moon. Gibbous, by the way, means more than half and less than full. Look for the gibbous moon towards the north, and just four degrees away, you'll be able to see the planet Mars. Remember, of course, that a finger, a pinky held at arm's length is about a degree. So it's going to be about four finger widths away from the moon. The brightest, brightest, orangish, reddish-looking object will be the planet Mars in the constellation of Gemini, the twins. Just a few days later, the moon will be on the 19th, just two degrees from the planet Saturn. Remember, Saturn is in the constellation of Leo the Lion and slightly yellowish. But really, the moon is a fabulous pointer because it moves so much each day and it always sticks close to the planets lying on the ecliptic. So we can actually use it pretty much as a pointer throughout the sky and highlight where some of the planets are. So the 15th and the 19th are the best times this month to see planets in the night sky. If you're prepared to get up early enough on the 25th of March at about 6am or a little bit before, look due east. What you'll be able to see is the fleet-footed messenger to the gods, Mercury, that elusive little planet, less than one degree from Venus. Really, don't miss this. Venus is stupendously bright at the moment as the morning star. People will be dazzled by it, and I can assure you that there'll be lots of messages on my answering machine each morning. So look at Venus, and less than the width of a pinky held at arm's length, you'll be able to see the small planet Mercury. Just a few days later, you'll actually be able to see on the 28th, um, the planet Uranus will join the two but you really do need a pair of binoculars. So if you've got a pair of binoculars on a tripod or something very, very stable, look at Venus, and in the same field of view, you'll be able to see the planet Mercury, and you'll also see a very small, faint, bluish little dot, and that is the first planet to be discovered, Uranus. If you're up super, super late, or in fact ridiculously early, 
Throughout the month of March, you'll be able to see Jupiter rising in the east. At the beginning of the month, it'll rise at about 2.20am, and by the end of the month, by about 1am. Jupiter is an impressive object to look at. Even through binoculars mounted firmly, you can sometimes see, depending on the weather conditions and how high it up is in the sky, its four pinpoint moons of Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. Don't forget, of course, that it was views of these moons by Galileo Galilei uh, nearly 400 years ago that actually changed our universe forever. But perhaps I'll save that to when Jupiter's visible in the evening sky. That was the monthly sky guide to the southern sky for March 2008, provided by Sydney Observatory. For more information, you can check our blog at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au forward slash blog. But don't forget, for a more comprehensive map and details of times and everything like that, you can check out the Australian Sky Guide, available online or at Sydney Observatory and Powerhouse Museum shops.